And welcome to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway for Sunday, January 5th, 2020. My name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today, we have Jenna Tessa Fox, Peter Felicia, and Michael Portantier. Jenna is a theater writer and reviewer whose articles have appeared at Time Out New York, Playbill, Broadway World, and New York Theater Guide. She has her own podcast, Spotlight, on the Broadway Radio Network. Good morning, Jenna. Good morning, James. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Welcome back to uh, This Week on Broadway. It's been way too long since we've had you on. I completely agree, and thank you very much. (laughs) Well, thank you for getting up on a Sunday morning and uh, playing with us. Thank you for inviting me. Also with us is Peter Felicia. Peter is a playwright, journalist, and historian with a number of books. His columns appear at Masterworks Broadway, Broadway Select, and many other places. Good morning, Peter. Hi. Good morning. Also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael is a theater reviewer and essayist. He's also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You can see his photography work at filespotphoto.com. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. Good morning. So we don't typically start off with uh, news, but what I wanted to start with is that on January 2nd, we got a press release that shook the New York uh, theatrical industry. Uh, I'll start with uh, the first paragraph. The board of directors of the New York Musical Theater, uh, New York Musical Festival announced today that after 15 years of presenting vibrant new musical theater, Nymph will cease operations immediately, which was a shock to many, many people. Was it a shock to the three of you? Not particularly. Um, <clears throat> I, it, to me, the festival, personally now, it was a law of diminishing returns in the sense that mm. when it first started, I was going to so many of them. Uh, I, I couldn't get enough of them. And as the years went on, fewer and fewer and fewer, because um, so many of them weren't good at all. And what this really turned into, it seems to me, was um, pretty much a vanity project thing that, uh, first off, people had to pay for these things. I know somebody who spent $77,000 on um, getting his show up. I mean, it'd be wonderful if there were a festival that where the festival people would be paying um, for these things and making them happen. That may be astonishingly unrealistic. And I'm all set to um, concede that, but nevertheless, I mean, so many people spend so much money on shows that weren't good. And um, more and more, I mean, I, I think the last years, last couple of years, I don't think I saw one of them and I wasn't drawn to any one of them. Uh, and again, they were tainted by the lousy ones that came before them. So, <laughs> so as a result, you know, I, I wish I could mourn more, but I would mourn more even if they were terrible musicals, if indeed the festival were paying for them and uh, indeed the people didn't have to shell out all this money. But uh, yeah, and of course, this is America. You know, people didn't have to shell out the money. They, they could have uh, just sent out their scripts and scores and done it that way, which is not nearly as um, easy uh, for producers to do because they love to see things rather than sit down and read and listen. But still, I mean, the show's just got worse and worse and worse. So as a result, I'm not surprised this has happened. And given the fact that I haven't been going, I'm certainly not going to miss it. Michael, what did you think? Yeah, I looked it up and actually in August 2012 on our podcast, I had made a remark that I thought that Nymph would not be around much longer. And this did not go over well with 
uh, Isaac Robert Hurwitz, who was the executive director and producer of Nymph at that point. I think, was he the second person? Yeah, Chris Stewart was the first. Right, and Elizabeth thank you. Lewis, uh, Elizabeth Lucas. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so he got extremely upset about that and came on and talked about it. But I uh, was talking, uh, I personally was talking only in terms of what Peter just mentioned, in terms of the quality. I had noticed a tremendous decrease from the time when Nymph first started with shows like Alter Boys, um, mm. title of show. Next to normal. The, the thing that the show that became next to normal. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, the great American trailer park musical. Uh, and I don't know. I'm sure it's extremely complicated. The reasons for the changes. Uh, I, I'm sure it has a lot to do with the setup of of the festival and the deal that the uh, writers and the performers got a friend of mine. Um, now this is just, you know, one person's opinion, mm-hmm. but a, friend, a friend of mine blames equity partly because I think that the deal changed there as far as what the act, how the actors were remunerated and that became more expensive. Um, but whatever the reason, uh, it, it just seemed like it was such an obvious uh, devolvement in quality. Uh, someone recently, very in the past couple of days, posted an opinion on this somewhere online anonymously, but it sounds so much like what I felt that I, I'm, I quoted it. I, I, I copied it down. Uh, the, the person wrote, Nymph's financial model was to heavily charge the participating productions. As years went by, it got you less and less attention for being part of Nymph, mm-hmm. uh, and there seemed to be less and less reason to shell out the money. So Nymph lost the best work out there and instead presented lesser work by people with money to lose. Mm-hmm. And, per, and because the quality was down, you got even less attention mm-hmm. and had even less reason to pony up. And then the word vanity productions indeed was used. Mm-hmm. So um, I think it was maybe uh, somewhat gradual, uh, that that happened. That things happened to shift it from what it was those that first year or two mm-hmm. to what it very fairly soon became. And it's it's so unfortunate because it could be it could have been something great. I know uh, I can think of one person I know uh, who did a show in Nymph, and I spoke with that person at length, and they said that they would never do it again. Mm. It would, they thought it would have been, they would have been just as as well just doing their own off off Broadway showcase production mm-hmm. financially and in every other way. I think, um, and it, I mean, uh, maybe this is obvious to say, but when them first started, the main reason to become involved with it was that it was. Uh, there was so much buzz about it and so much publicity. Um, I don't remember who the initial press rep was. Anyone happen to remember? I'm not even sure they had one. Huh. Oh, no, I, uh, I, I'm not saying I'm you right. Know, uh, um, uh, Matt, uh, what's his name? Uh, over at Broadway Briefing was their press rep, uh, internal press rep for a while. He ran uh, oh, okay. promotions uh, inside Nymph at the at the very beginning uh, and left uh, just a couple of years ago uh, after he started briefing. Right. Uh, so I, I don't know if that uh, 
is what you're referring to, but I, they did have a tremendous amount of buzz at the very beginning. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, and they had, and rightly so, because they had such great quality projects that were mm-hmm. coming out of it. Right. I thought so, there was an outside press rep also. but uh, Shane Marshall Brown. I'm looking here in 2010. Oh, yeah? Shane Marshall oh. Brown was a oh. uh, press rep for Nymph. Oh, see the so Well, there you go. Uh, yeah. Um, uh, and then another thing, though, the final thing, final point I guess I'll make is that uh, another issue was, and a friend of mine just was constantly railing against this, that they started to do so many shows uh, mm. per year that it seemed like, I, I know many times I said, why don't they do half as many <laughs> and uh, not spread out the resources and, and give audiences a, more of a chance of getting to each one and, uh, and not having to cram in the schedule. It just seemed like, uh, and I guess their reason That's for a financial it, issue. Well, yeah, I, yes. I mean, I suppose that because they were getting more, <laughs> more money from more of those people. Mm-hmm. Although, mm-hmm. as Peter said earlier, ideally it would have been the opposite case, and they would have been getting fund. The productions would have been getting funding, more funding rather than uh, having to pony up tremendous amounts of money in order to be part of the festival. So it seems like that maybe in the very beginning it had a a really good and interesting business model, but that either wasn't sustainable or they they couldn't figure out a way to sustain it. And it is sad. It, it's unfortunate. So, uh, Jenna, what do you have any thoughts about uh, Nymph? I mean, not much to add. Uh, I mean, you all basically said everything I was going to say. Uh, you know, I'm heartbroken that a platform for presenting new theater works has disappeared. I mean, Fringe is not what it was. The Midtown Festival is gone. I mean, there's mm. so many, there used to be so many platforms for experimental new works to get their first tryouts. And it's always a tragedy when those platforms disappear. Um, I also you know, got to see a lot of early nymph shows, and they were wonderful. I mean, I think this will probably go on my tombstone. I believe I was the first person to ever review title of show. And I mean, seeing it at nymph, then seeing it at the Vineyard, then seeing it on Broadway was just wonderful. Watching it grow and evolve was thrilling. And the fact that you know a show that innovative and completely different from anything that had been done before had a chance to grow and develop was wonderful. Um, And for for that matter, wouldn't exist if it weren't for the festival. (laughs) I mean, quite literally, it would not have existed if (laughs) that festival didn't give, you know, the kick in the butt to uh, Hunter and Jeff to start creating the show. Mm -hmm. It was wonderful. And then they went on to do, you know, other shows. I never got to see now hear this, but it's, it was wonderful to have that platform, and I'm very sorry that you're right. It be- did begin to uh, fall apart after a while. Uh, for a few years, I was a voter for uh, for some of their awards and got mm. to see quite a few of the shows. And you know, some of them were really good, and some of them needed more work. But that's the point of mm. a festival like this: when the shows need mm-hmm. more work, this is where they get to try it out. And so, even when the shows weren't great, I was still excited to see them because you could tell. This was not emerging talent necessarily, but these were projects that were developing, and it was wonderful to watch them in their earliest stages. And I will really, I will miss having that platform around. I do hope uh, in some way it can come back or something takes its place, because without these platforms, 
I mean, we're just going to get revivals and revivals and revivals. Uh, we need the platforms and the programs for new works to develop. So I hope something takes its place soon. And I am grateful to the creative team that the, that the festival existed for as long as it did. Yeah, especially with the preponderance of uh, musicals featuring old music uh, oh my on God, Broadway. Yes. Yeah, yes, all the exactly. more so. It's all it's all the greater a tragedy. It really is. And you know, I, I know some of the people who were involved in it. I've been reading through uh, comments on Facebook for the past several days of people discussing what went wrong and what should have happened, what could have happened. But also, I mean, we have to acknowledge the uh, financial logistics. And I was not in the room where it happened. I don't know uh, if they could have uh, set up a festival like this without charging the people to uh, participate for tens of thousands of dollars. I'm, I'm not an accountant, um, but I hope they can figure out some other way to make this work uh, going forward. Well, someone mentioned, and you know, it's easy for us to say, but couldn't um, someone, <laughs> uh, some musical theater figure with a tremendous amount of money uh, establish some kind of a foundation just exactly for something like this? And and if several of those people got together, it would be even more uh, feasible for them financially. Uh, I mean, there are some people like Andrew Lloyd Webber, Stephen Sondheim, uh, et cetera, et cetera, who I would imagine that uh, they could fund something like this for uh, a, a very small percentage of the money that they possess. I mean, don't, don't a number of our nonprofits already sort of fill this, uh, this niche that you're talking about uh, just in their own way, whether it be, you know, playwrights or, uh, you know, yes, second, I agree with that. second stage mm -hmm. and yeah. uh, round, well, roundabouts is doing some stuff, Lincoln center theater. I mean, a, a lot of these uh, things already do it. I mean, Andrew Ledweber and Cameron McIntosh uh, do donate a significant amount of money for uh, different types of development, whether, you know, Andrew Ledweber gives a, an enormous amount of money for, uh, for instruments for uh, students to learn how to play mm -hmm. uh, instruments and things like that. I, I'm not... I, I, I get the I, school I of rock thing too. Where, yeah, the school. Yeah, but uh, Peter had brought up a good point. Um, you know, one of his uh, somebody that he knows. I'm not sure if it was a friend or not that spent. Uh, you know, nearly eighty thousand dollars to put their show into Nymph. They could just do their own thing. Right. Um, yeah. There's no sense in paying Nymph because not only did you pay Nymph to put on your show or pay to put on your show at Nymph, but then you gave away a piece of your show to Nymph. If exactly. Your show, yeah. If your show was ever successful. Anyway, um, is there anything else that you guys wanted to uh, talk about before I moved on to the next thing? Let's move yeah. on. Okay. Let's move on um, to... Uh, um, Michael, mm -hmm. I, I'd like to say, what are you doing New Year's Eve? But what did you do New Year's Eve? Well, I didn't uh, watch it on when it was actually telecast, but there was a New York Philharmonic uh, New Year's Eve gala, which was to be a celebration of Stephen Sondheim, uh, speaking of the devil. Um, <laughs> Not uh, the devil. Just yeah, no. Really. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's an expression. It's not meant literally right. Exactly. <laughs> Quite the opposite. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, 
in uh, highlighting his orchestral music. And uh, I caught most of it uh, online afterwards. And it just had its moments. But there were also some very, very odd moments about it. First of all, it was hosted by Bernadette Peters, uh, who basically didn't sing a note. Uh, she just hosted. Uh, she did do a little tiny bit of, I guess, one of the witches' raps from Into the Woods with the orchestra, but no actual singing. And it was that, that you know, Bernadette not singing should be illegal. Hmm. Well, it uh, you know, <laughs> let's just say it seemed odd. Mm-hmm, you know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and mostly, it was uh, there were orchestral suites from several of Sondheim's works. But then uh, also another oddity was that the first number in the program was the overture from uh, A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum, which is famously scored for no violins uh, for whatever reason. It's got violas and cellos and basses, but no violins. Uh, the, uh, the orchestrator just decided that's what he wanted. Um, and then the last piece on the program, as, as done as the encore, was the overture to Merrily We Roll Along, which has not only no violins, but uh, basically no strings except, uh, I guess, some, some cellos and, and basses. So I thought, uh, you know, I mean, I love both of those pieces, but the New York Philharmonic is a full symphony orchestra with a huge string section. And it just seemed very odd to see it on the telecast and, uh, see all of those people just sitting there for those two numbers. And I thought, um, given the t- tremendous amount of output that Sondheim has written uh, in all of those shows, um, it, that maybe those two choices did not have to be made and something else could have been chosen. They did not do a little night music, which uh, that one, uh, you know, uh, conversely, I believe has no trumpets. So, but maybe they could have uh, done a night music suite um, to give the strings more of a chance to shine. And, and uh, you know, it would have been okay to have the trumpets to sit that out uh, since they're not in that. So that was odd. And then uh, the other thing was that was very strange was that there were only only two vocal numbers, both sung by Katrina Link, who's going to be playing Bobby, B-O-B-B-I-E, in the uh, new production, the revisal of Company that's about to open. And she sang uh, two songs from Follies, Losing My Mind, uh, which is one of uh, Sally's songs in the show, and uh, Could I Leave You, which is one of Phyllis's songs. And uh, let's just say that her interpretations were... um, quite different from any other that I have ever seen. And it seems uh, that there was a lot of negative reaction, a lot of extremely negative reaction to that. Michael, uh, I I have not seen this, but I saw a lot of the negative reaction as well and said Mm -hmm. that there was uh, lyric problems, uh, some missed lyrics and things like that. Did you notice that? Um, I I think I noticed one uh, minor flub, uh, 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 but, to, uh, to be honest, I didn't notice anything okay. major in terms mm-hmm. of that. Yeah. So, uh, does it give us pause over mm. what, what's coming up in company? Mm. Well, I don't know. I mean, I, I to, to me, the whole concept of of company with a female Bobby sounded very odd from the first moment, moment I heard it, and uh, not having seen it in London or uh, has it started here yet? No. No. Yeah. Uh, 
you know, I mean, we can we can make our uh, we can have our opinions based on just we know what we know of something uh, before we actually see a revival or or whatever. And uh, I'm, you know, and so I do. I think it's only natural to do so, but I have to obviously reserve judgment until I get to see it. All right. So uh, it, you can still see it. Uh, I think in the United States. I'm not sure about other places, but you can still see it on the Channel uh, 13 or uh, pbs.org website, at least here in the U.S., as I mentioned. I'll throw a link to that in the show notes if you want to check it out. Uh, you know, uh, a bad night of Sondheim is better than a good night of uh, most everything else. I should mention it was directed uh, by Lonnie Price, and the musical director was Alexander Gemignani, hmm. who has, you know, we, we knew him starting as an actor uh, in several shows. Um, and most recently, he was, I think, on Broadway as a replacement for Alfie Doolittle in My Fair Lady. Mm. But he is the son of Paul Gemignani, who is the, uh, you know, considered the, the Sondheim conductor for the past, what, 40 years or so. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now Alex himself uh, seems to be moving into musical direction and conducting. And in fact, I guess I had read this but forgot, he is the musical director and conductor of the new West Side Story. Uh, so, but here he was making his New York Philharmonic debut and, uh, I didn't watch the whole thing or listen to the whole thing, but it seemed to me that overall he did uh, quite a good job. There was one tempo that I really questioned, but you know, that's, <laughs> that's very subjective. So, um, I don't, um, uh, want to, uh, denigrate Paul Gemignani in any way, uh, cause he certainly is a terrific terrific uh, musical director, conductor, etc. Hmm. However, uh, one has to appreciate the fact that he got one of the great breaks of all time because what had happened was he was the assistant on Follies and the musical director who had been the musical director for Hell Prince for years, Harold Hastings, decided he was going to produce a musical and that was The Selling of the President. And so as a result, he left Follies to be the musical director of the selling of the president. I mean, he had to, if he was producing it, I mean, certainly he was going to be the musical director. So as a result, Paul Gebignani moved up and got his chance to be the guy in charge. And that started his career going. So uh, I think that Paul Gebignani will always be grateful to the selling of the president, which opened on March 22nd, 1972 and closed on March 25th, 1972. And, um, after that, um, it was uh, pretty good for um, for Paul Gemignani. Granted, I will tell you that um, uh, he um, Harold ha- Harold Hastings did do a little night music, um, but what had happened was um, no sooner did it begin than just a few months later he died, and then um, I believe Paul Gemignani took over. But um, again, what a break for Paul Gemignani that um, Hal. Hastings really thought that the selling of the president was going to be a big deal. Hmm. I didn't know that. That's really interesting. That's a great story. It's, it's always uh, interesting to look and see how people move up yeah. in their various fields. I mean, often, uh, uh, often conductors start as musicians in orchestras. Sure. Uh, and uh, choreographers often, often start as dancers, obviously. Uh, and it's all about connections and talent and mm. being in the right place, place at, the, at right the right time. time. Nothing yep. beats that. Yeah. Yep. Mm. Amen to that. <laughs> <laughs> 
All right. <laughs> so uh, one thing we haven't uh, touched on yet is the answer to last week's trivia question, Peter. Why don't you help us out with that? All right. Um, I mentioned that in the 1960s, many characters were named Smith. Uh, there were Smiths and Jimmy, Subway's Up for Sleeping, Nowhere to Go But Up, and On a Clear Day You Can See Forever. But there was another character who was born with the surname Smith that IBDB doesn't mention. The actor who played him was the top billed lead. Who's this Smith? Who portrayed him? And what was the musical? Um, well, the answer was Starbuck, uh, played by Robert Horton in 110 The Shade. He admits to Lizzie that he was born with the name Smith, but felt it was too mundane and had to change it. Now, I, I really thought this one would even stump Tony Janicki. <laughs> no, no. He got it at one twenty-eight on Monday morning after apologizing for being late because he and his beau, both Chicago residents, were at a show at Steppenwolf. Perfectly fine, Tony. Perfectly fine. Go see those hits. We can wait. It's no problem. Anyway, he was followed by Jack Leshner and Brigadude. So that's last week's question. All right. Later on in this uh, broadcast, we will give you the question for this week. Jenna. Uh, you got down to New York Theater Workshop to see Sing Street. Uh, so what did you think about Sing Street? Um, quite enjoyed it. Um, it was, uh, I, I, this the show was reviewed already by Michael and Peter on the uh, December 22nd uh, this week on Broadway. So you can listen to that for the, uh, the premise and the, the overall storyline. Um, and I agree very much with what they had to say. Uh, it's, I was thinking during the show, it's so much fun to watch characters discuss rock music the way we sit around and discuss theater. Hmm. And I think the uh, uh, Enda Walsh's script, uh, well, her variation on uh, John Carney's uh, screenplay, since this was based on a movie, uh, really captures that passion for music very nicely. And it was fun to hear. Um, like Michael said, there isn't that much of a plot, and the show isn't really all that original, but it has so much heart and so much energy, and that can compensate for a lot. Uh, and I should note that I have not seen the movie, so I can't compare the two versions. But the show is strong enough to stand on its own. You don't need to see the movie to appreciate this. Um, like I said, Enda Walsh's book is fine. Uh, my big criticism of it would be it leaves a lot of threads dangling, and it also doesn't take a lot of risks. I mean, there are no surprises here except for the number of storylines that just end with no real resolution. Mm -hmm. And I also, again, I agree with Michael and Peter. Uh, the songs by Gary Clark and by John Carney, they're catchy, they're fun, they are absolutely worth a second listen. And I, has a cast recording been announced or even released yet? I haven't Is, heard one. No? Okay, neither have I. Um, although, I, I, Michael, I do disagree with you. Um, I thought the actors were playing most of their music live. Uh, you had suggested that they might not all be. You know, I really, really don't think so. At least really? uh, the, the, what was so obvious to me was the drummer. That did not Ooh. sound like a, a live drummer to me. I could be completely wrong. Maybe was it an electronic drum? Maybe. No, I mean, it looked like a real drum set. Well, he, there was a real drum set. There was a guy there who was only there to play, the, quote unquote, the drums. Right. And I think I commented that he didn't have a single line in the show. Right. I think uh, he's the only one who doesn't have a, yeah, any and, dialogue. And they kept wheeling on his and off his drum set. And he certainly looked like he had all of the... Uh, you know, all of the movements, <laughs> the, uh, the, the rhythms were actually happening, but it just sounded like a synthesizer to me. It could very well be, uh, but I was keeping an eye out for that. 
and it did seem to me like they were playing live. So maybe I'm wrong, but it sounded good anyway. Um, oh, it sounded good. I will try yes. to find out. I, okay. I will. I, let me know because I'd be very interested. Yeah. Um, Brennick O'Connor, like everyone has said, he gives a very, very nice performance as the teenager, Connor, who starts the band with his classmates. He just really captures all of the awkwardness and the rebelliousness of being 16. And he balances those two facets of adolescence very, very nicely. That was a lovely performance. Uh, Watching Martin Moran as the evil, sadistic mm-hmm. brother. <laughs> I mean, I, I did not get to see the tricky part and I need to read the book, but I know Martin Moran has a very complicated history with Catholicism, if I remember correctly. So, you know, his portrayal of this uh, of brother Baxter is just really, really chilling. Uh, it, having heard so many horror stories about sadistic teachers in uh, parochial and uh, uh, and Catholic schools, well, religious schools in general, uh, it did not seem over the top at all to me. It seemed frighteningly and disturbingly utterly believable. I agree. Yeah. <laughs> and I might Didn't add it, that Jenna. Peter yes. went to a parochial school. Yeah. Twelve years. <laughs> me yeah. too. Just high school, but yes, and we had we did have Christian <laughs> brothers. I thought it was great how uh, in the beginning. When you first met him, he didn't seem maybe so bad. He just seemed like, you know, kind of uh, kind of rigid. But And I thought it was an interesting character trait that he was a chain smoker. Yes. <laughs> uh, but then as it went on, you saw uh, that he really was, you know, becoming actually physically abusive. They didn't go into this sexual abuse, which I think maybe was just as well. Yeah. Because that's such Indeed. an overwhelming thing. Uh, but this was certainly made the point that he... Uh, you know, that he was this tyrant and would not stop at physical abuse uh, in order to maintain, quote unquote, discipline. Exactly. And the the realism of his performance, that it isn't over the top and that it grows from just, I'm a strict disciplinarian to I'm a bully to I'm a sadist is just horrifyingly believable and real. And I would really, I'd love to interview him to just ask, what was that like? How did you build that up so gradually and believably? Um, It was just chilling. And that was a real standout performance to me. Uh, If the show transfers or extends again, I hope he stays with it. Uh, It's a really memorable, powerful performance. Mm. Um, Zara Devlin does a very nice job as the object of Connor's infatuation. Uh, She does manage to raise her role, uh, uh, Rafina, beyond the girl. Um, But she doesn't get all that much to do. I mean, admittedly, the story is focused on Connor. I would have loved to have seen more from her perspective. Uh, Sam Poon does a nice job as well as Connor's friend, Eamon, who helps him build the band and offers a lot of support. Uh, Gus Halper is just heartbreaking as Connor's brother, Brendan, who's become agoraphobic when he's faced with all the harshness of the world outside, but he can't survive the harshness of the world inside either. Uh, And Billy Carter and Amy Warren do very nice work as Connor's parents who are struggling with financial hardships and possible infidelity. And watching the family fall apart, again, it's handled very gradually and believably. It starts off with some arguments and grows into screaming matches. And it's it's chilling and very believable. Uh, Anne L. Nathan is another standout as a very supportive uh, neighboring mother who helps the band find its voice. And it was neat to see that it looked like, assuming that uh, the 
uh, people on stage really were playing their instruments. She was playing piano for quite a few of the songs. And it's just always cool to see other talents that actors have, especially when it serves a show and a story very, very well. Uh, Rebecca Tashman's direction, it does a very nice job balancing humor and pathos. Uh, the story, like, I, like we've all said, is unoriginal. It's straightforward. But she does find ways of adding some real sparks to it. Like uh, Skylar Volpe is Connor's sister, Anne. In one argument scene, she just begins pounding the table and nobody reacts to it. Like she's flipping out in the middle of a family fight and no one cares until you realize she's setting the beat for the next song. And the band comes in and begins playing their next number using her pounding the table as their rhythm. And it's just a great little moment. And I held my breath when I realized what was happening and how they were transitioning from one scene to the next using her flipping out as the, as the momentum. Um, Martin Lowe's music direction nicely adjusts rock to a theatrical space very nicely, although uh, the sound design, which is credited to uh, Darren West and Charles Coase, uh, sometimes certain lyrics were hard to hear. I don't know if that's because of the orchestrations or if that's because of the volume or what, but I would really like to get my hands on the script so I can figure out what lines that I miss. <laughs> and as you mentioned in the uh, on the 22nd, uh, Bob Crawley's set uses almost all of the New York Theatre Workshop stage, so it looks a lot more like a concert space than a theatrical set, and it works very, very nicely. So it's a good show. I hope it extends. I hope it transfers and has a longer run. It, maybe it doesn't need to be on Broadway, but an open-ended run in an off-Broadway space could really work. I mean, uh, oh, my God, I just blanked on the name of the theater where Fiddler on the Roof is ending its uh, so the Stage 42. Run to, thank you. <laughs> stage 42. I mean, that could be a very good space for it, good number of seats. I mean, it's, it's a lovely show. It's smart and... Uh, I, I hope it has an extended life and, and does very well. All right. So uh, that is Sing Street Down at New York Theater Workshop. And uh, as Jenna mentioned, Peter and Michael discussed it. because so We'll have uh, links to all that stuff in the show notes here. Um, you also, well, actually, let's talk about this. Uh, Michael, are you at the point in your life where you still go to birthday parties and sing along? <laughs> well, uh, there's one coming up that I think I am going to go to. You're going to go to that birthday party? So tell us about it. Well, yeah, I got a, uh, an email from the New York Public Library at Lincoln Center, and one of their programs coming up, which is free, folks, uh, Thursday, January 30th at 6 p.m. It's called the Hal Prince Birthday Party Sing Along and Show and Tell. And it says, uh, Company Follies, A Little Night Music, Phantom, Avita Cabaret, Fiddler, Merrily Sweeney, West Side, Oh My. Lend your voice to our Harold Prince celebration, play games, win prizes, and sing along to live performances of beloved songs from Harold Prince musicals. And uh, we'll put the link in the show notes uh they're free tickets but you still have to reserve them uh and you can reserve as many as two uh you know per person so i'm planning to be at that and it sounds like a tre tremendous amount of fun I don't, I don't think they have any personnel announced i don't know if there are any uh, celebs planned to be there but who knows uh, considering who we're celebrating, I, it sounds like mm. it might be really great. They have they have wonderful. Uh, check out the the calendar in general at uh, 
the library. It's usually the Bruno Walter Auditorium where these things are held. And they really have some great stuff and it's all free. So that, you know, that always fits into the budget. All right. So we have a link to the Harold Prince birthday party sing along and show and tell in the show notes. So uh, get over there and get your reservations in. It's um, January 30th, which is a Thursday from 6 p.m. to 7.30 p.m. Yes. So you can actually still catch a show right after that. Yes. All right. Uh, and also, Peter and Michael talked about Lucas Nath's um, The Thin Place. Uh, but Jenna, you got a chance to see this. So Jenna, what did you think about Thin Play- The Thin Place? Um, quite... Uh, uh. I'm trying to find good things to say about it because I love, <laughs> I love Lucas Nate's plays. He's been creating some very insightful, very thought-provoking plays for a while now. He's been touching on some very weighty issues with nuance and very simple, clear language. I'm always eager to see whatever he does. Uh, but I just found The Thin Place very disappointing. Uh, the play seems to be a memory piece about ghosts and demons that are both metaphorical and literal, uh, but it's really just focused more on style than substance. And uh, I found that style to be overwhelming and distracting. Honestly, the house lights remain up for most of the evening. The protagonist never leaves her armchair. She talks to the audience in this very quiet, measured tone that doesn't seem to have an awful lot of emotion behind it. And, and maybe I'm remembering it wrong, but uh, <laughs> it, it gets creepy. But because we don't seem to learn an awful lot about most of the characters, it's just not that easy to be genuinely scared for them. And you know, I will say creating a horror show in a theatrical space is very different from creating a horror movie. You can have cool effects in a horror film that you can't do on a stage and you can control, you can better control on film what the audience sees in order to build the tension on film than on stage. So the fact that they tried to create a horror story on the stage is very admirable. Uh, but it just, it, just didn't really work for me. Uh, the play, as was discussed on the 22nd, and I don't have an awful lot to add to uh, to that review, uh, it was narrated by Hilda, who's played by Emily Cass McDonnell. Uh, she believes in psychics and the supernatural, and she wants to reconnect with two women in her family who may or may not be dead. Uh, Randy Danson plays the psychic who just takes advantage of grieving families. And she just gnaws on the scenery very nicely. But again, it's kind of hard to muster up sympathy for a character who cons people who are in pain. And there's a subplot with a few other characters that involves political arguments. And the whole subplot just never seems to go anywhere. It's introduced randomly, and then it's dropped just as randomly. And honestly, it could probably be cut because it just isn't all that memorable. It doesn't go anywhere, and it honestly seems to detract from the main ghost story. Uh, Les Waters' direction is very gentle and soothing, uh, so that helps build up some gradual tension. But again, we don't really get to let go of that tension. There are a few jump scares that are effective, but the pace is so slow for so much of it that the jump scares just seem like a gimmick rather than a natural release of that tension. Mimi Lien created the set and given her work on you know, so many other projects and uh, especially Natasha Pierre, I was really expecting something bigger and bolder. Instead, the set is just 
gray with two armchairs and a tiny table between them and a light. And that's about it. It's very minimalist and rather surprising coming from uh, Ms. Lien, who's very well known for her spectacular scenery. Um, I, I'm trying to think of other nice things to talk about for the play. Hmm. Uh, I really wanted to enjoy this a lot more than I did. Uh, it's running for a few more weeks off Broadway. If it extends, uh, if it transfers to another venue, I, I truly hope Lucas Nath will take another look at it and maybe figure out where else it could go because it shows a lot of potential and it takes some risks, which is great, but it it just did not... <sighs> It did not give me the uh, the. I'm trying to think of how to phrase this. Parts <laughs> of it got under my skin. Parts of it were very effective, but more often than not, I was busy looking at the scenery, trying to figure out where is the next jump scare going to come from, because the political arguments just really were not that exciting and did not seem to be propelling the main story forward very much. So I hope he has a chance to take another look at it and maybe rework. Uh, through some of the weaker moments and expand on the stronger ones. That last description, Jenna, sounded like uh, holidays at most families. Yeah. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. All right. <laughs> yes. So uh, let's move into our main discussion of the day, mm-hmm. which is uh, the Cats film, which is now which is Meow playing in theaters. As the website says, main website, catsmovie, catsmovie.com says meow playing in theaters. So, Michael, why don't you get us started on uh, Cats? Film. Oh, thank you, James. Thank you very much. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, I saw it uh, a few days ago. I was literally one of two people in the theater. Seriously? Two? Two. Yeah, it seems as though oh. that they've... Uh, uh, Katz wow. is, is looking to lose about $70 million on the, oh. the studio is going to lose $70 million, which we might talk about after we review the film itself. We might talk about, will this impact the future of other movie musicals? But Michael, mm. keep going. It was a bargain matinee on a weekday. <laughs> I didn't want to pay full price. Um, you know, so maybe uh, if it had been a later show, there would have been some more people. Also, I think the movie was playing across the street from itself uh, on 42nd Street. Uh, perhaps it didn't need to be in as many theaters, uh, you know, but they didn't know how, how it was going to pan out, obviously. Um, when we talked about the revival of Cats, the Broadway revival, mm-hmm. I made some semi-flip remark uh, to the effect that the, uh, the fact that Cats doesn't have a plot wouldn't be a problem if it didn't think it had a plot. Uh, and <laughs> what I meant was that uh, when you see the show, it is basically in many ways a review um, almost, but they do try to give it some kind of a through line and a plot. Uh, there is this idea that someone is going to be chosen. One of the cats is going to be chosen to ascend to the heavy side layer. And then also um, there's this McCavity character who I thought that doesn't work at all in the show because he's supposed to be this nefarious person or or, or Mm -hmm. cat rather (laughs) uh, whom they refer to constantly. uh, But his entrance is delayed and and we're supposed to think he's scary because every now and then you'll hear a noise off stage and everyone will stop and go, McCavity, 
and you're like, what's going on? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, in the movie, for better or worse, they, they really did try to address these situations. And let me say from the beginning that I think the best part of the movie for me was the very opening because what they did uh, was uh, those of you who know the show, uh, as I recall, it starts with that orchestral prologue. Mm-hmm. Um, that's uh, kind of like the, the first melody is something like da 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 something it's like an into the woods kind of medley melody mm. uh, and then it eventually gets to da 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 and as I recall the original production what happened during that whole thing was basically a light show um, with uh, a lot of pyrotechnics to dazzle the audience but the cats weren't even on stage during it uh, as I recall, is my memory correct? I think, so. I, think thought right. they, I thought that was when they started moving through the audience. I think they, I think they start coming out right after that when uh, they start singing, but I could be wrong. Uh, anyway, uh, the point is that nothing really happens during the prologue in the stage show, but in the movie, they have used it for something I found really intriguing and interesting. What we see is... The first thing we see is a, you know, as a long shot of this London set. Uh, I'm not sure how much of it is constructed and how much of it is computer graphics. And then we see a, uh, you know, in the distance, a, uh, a silhouette, uh, basically of a, a, a human female uh, who has a bag in her hand that obviously seems to have something moving inside of it. And, and we eventually come to understand that she is about to abandon a cat. And sure enough, she, uh, I guess she drives somewhere and then she throws this bag onto the ground and a, and a, a cat, presumably a, a newborn cat, emerges from the bag and that cat is uh, um, Francesca Hayward as Victoria. And what happens is that the other cats are in, in the area watching this happen and then they sing the opening number to her. Uh, so I thought that that was a really good idea because it, it gave us some stakes, some dramatic stakes at the beginning of the movie. And then it also eliminated the, necess- the necessity of the cats having to sing the opening number to the audience, which arguably would work even less well in a movie than mm-hmm. on stage. Yeah. Um, so I thought that was all really, really good. And then I almost thought for a few minutes that, gee, maybe I'm going to disagree and maybe I'm going to like this quite a bit. Um, I think a, a tremendous amount of how one re- reacts to the movie depends on how one feels the characters look. Apparently, many people feel they look extremely creepy. Um, uh, with their humanoid faces, uh, basically, and their cat bodies, but not completely cat bodies. Uh, it's inc- I'll tell you, regardless of how you think of how they look, it's in- incredible to me that apparently all of the, the bodies were created with computer graphics. It, it looks almost to me like really, really expensive, incredibly well done, uh, you know, cat suits as uh, you would see almost in a, in a sh- stage production of the show, but apparently not. Um, uh, and the fact that they had to go through every shot and, and, and graph these, 
these uh, bodies onto these people is, is just incredible to me uh, that that the technology exists for that. There has been much publicity about the fact that they didn't finish it. Um, and specifically, uh, for some reason, everyone is focusing on the fact that in one particular scene, Judy Dench's human hand is visible yeah. uh, and with her wedding ring, uh, <laughs> no less. Uh, I guess it's call more attention to it. But the funny thing there is um, I actually noticed human hands before that scene. Um, there are a, a huge number of hands that seem either completely or part human uh and i almost i wasn't sure if it was a stylistic choice or if um or if in fact they didn't finish it but if they didn't finish it i I was starting to wonder why they just left the hands till last maybe hands are more difficult to do that too because (laughs) of the fingers um i i'm stumped on that but if you do oh and p.s i saw it after this patch was supposedly sent out uh to all of the theaters to download um a uh, uh i guess they called it a patch that fixed this issue but not no uh, i mean i saw it like two or three days after that and her hand was very much still there with the wedding ring and everyone else's hands uh a great many of them looked like human hands. So I don't, I'm, I'm confused about what happened there and, and what's all about that. Um, anyway, uh, yeah, some people seem to feel the cats look very creepy in an island of Dr. Moreau kind of way. Um, <laughs> I, um, I did not so much. Maybe I had gotten used to it a little bit just from the trailers. Um, and then, Whatever I hadn't gotten used to, I sort of did within the first minute or two of the movie. I also think that uh, some of the cats look quite cute. And actually, to be honest, some of them look really hot. Um, Francesca Hayward, who I mentioned, who plays Victoria, she's a principal dancer in the Royal Ballet at Covent Garden in London. That's her main thing, but she's also an actress uh, who's known in London. I thought she looked very beautiful, and she has a major role in the show, including her bit at the beginning, which I just mentioned. So that was, I think that was a big plus that she looked so attractive and cute. Uh, This guy, Danny Collins, who plays Mungo Jerry, I looked him up. Um, he seems to have very few credits. He's a, a Brit, I guess, a Brit musical theater performer. He looked really hot to me. And um, uh, also, uh, I thought that Laurie Davidson as Mr. Mistopheles looked very cute. And you may know him as uh, having played young William Shakespeare in the uh, 2017 TNT TV series, Will. I did not see that, so I didn't know him from that, but I thought he was very appealing. On the other hand, uh, weird and or creepy looking cats or funny looking include, um, well, Idris Elba as McCavity, and he's supposed to look you know, scary. So I guess that's okay. But I did not like the way that James Corden looked as Bustopher Jones, nor Rebel Wilson as Jenny Annie Dots. And um, she's the one, I believe it's her character who has to eat the cockroaches mm-hmm. that are uh, you, little humanoid cockroaches. Um, and that is, I think everyone would agree, the most creepy scene in the movie uh, and should have been rethought. We didn't need that at all. I had mixed feelings about Jason Derulo as Rum Tum Tugger. 
Um, I thought he was okay, but uh, he didn't make that much of an impression. And Ian McKellen, it's nice to have him in the movie uh, because he's Ian McKellen, but um, he didn't seem to have much to do as Gus the theater cat uh, and very little singing. Uh, that that Doesn't he have a song that was removed? Yeah. Yeah. Um, in essence, um, the um, <clears throat> after Gus the Theater Cat, there was a sequence in London that was different from the one uh, here in Broadway because um, Andrew Lloyd Webber was very impressed with Stephen Hannon's voice and said, oh, I'm going to uh, write something specifically for you. Um, but those sequences, uh, either the London sequence or the Broadway sequence, just isn't there. Right. I thought so. Uh, uh, two more points. I thought that um, Andy Blankenbuehler, who did the last Broadway revival choreography, I, I, I mean, this is an amazing achievement just in terms of the the, the amount of it uh, and the coordination and choreographing a film like this for film. But I thought that... Um, one thing I noticed is that a lot of the choreography looked kind of jerky in a digital way. And I can only assume hmm. that that's because of the having to graft those bodies onto all of those dancing people. So I thought that was really unfortunate. It did not, there were many places where it didn't look fluid and uh, not always, but sometimes. So I, so maybe the whole thing, uh, many people seem to feel that the whole concept of doing it with cgi bodies was a mistake there was there were plans or uh, uh thoughts uh, anyway years ago of doing a film of cats with standard drawn animation and i think even steven spielberg uh mm -hmm. discussed right. yeah i think that that might have been a one better way to do it especially since uh, as i think we discussed recently um there does exist a video of basically the stage version of cats. Mm -hmm. um, so you could have had that and then you could have had a uh, standard animation uh, film of it in conjunction with that. Um, and then my last point I just wanted to make is I didn't want to fail to mention Robbie Fairchild, who has not gotten a lot of mention for the movie. I, I guess I'm not sure why, but he is in, in many ways the lead uh, as Monkus Trap. He, uh, he does a lot of uh, he from the beginning. He he takes center stage and he explains a lot to Victoria and he uh, acts as the mouthpiece in in some ways. Um, I thought he did a wonderful job for what he had to do, and he is a great dancer. So that was a big plus. Um, also, he I was very impressed with his Brit accent. He is not a Brit, but he did uh, play the lead in American and American in Paris in London after receiving acclaim for it on Broadway. So uh, maybe during his time there, he he uh, picked up the accent. It sounded like he did a really good job with that. Um, oh, and then just briefly, I, it's funny, I was about to not mention her at all, but um, Jennifer Hudson uh, is one who stood out for me as not having a Brit accent. So that was a little... A little disconcerting, but I guess one could say uh, it's all right because she's supposed to be an outsider. Um, that didn't bother me too much. Uh, it seemed like she cried through most of her famous, famous song, and I did not think that was the best choice. But that leads me to my final point, which is really interesting, and I have to do some research on this. It 
really, 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 really seemed to me like a tremendous amount of the singing was done live. And if it wasn't, then I have to say they did an amazing job of making it look like it was, uh, especially when someone is singing that way and, and sobbing at the same time. Uh, it, it's very difficult to sync that up to a pre-record, I would, I would think. So I, uh, this film was directed by Tom Hooper, who also did Les Miserables, which received a lot of publicity for having supposedly a lot of live singing in that. Uh, so maybe, um, maybe there was a good deal of live singing in the Cats movie. I, I don't expect the ensemble numbers, the big ensemble numbers, were live, but the many of the solo moments, if you see it, uh, please let me know if you agree with me. I, I highly suspect that a lot of it was sung live. All right. So, uh, Jenna, what do you have to say about Cats? Um, I was also wondering if it was sung live or pre-recorded, and I honestly hadn't heard a lot of publicity about, you know, and we're doing this live the way Les Mis was marketed mm. from the beginning as we're going to film everyone singing live. Right. So I'm, I'm not sure. Um, yeah, uh, don't have a massive amount to add to, uh, to what you said. I agree uh, a lot. I saw the movie thinking, God, I wish I had Robbie Rozelle's wit to describe mm -hmm. what the hell I'm seeing. Uh, and, and speaking of a total interjection, I am sure that this will be discussed at Robbie's next 54 Below show. So get your tickets now and come listen to someone much funnier than me take this thing <laughs> apart. Um, I'll, I will add, um, I think the film's biggest problem is that Cats was never meant to be cinematic. Uh, mm. It is theatrical. Yes. Uh, we expect to suspend our disbelief when we see a show on stage. We see the cardboard trees and the painted moon, as Patrick Dwyer said. Uh, but film is a medium with more realism. It is the difference between looking at a painting and looking at a photograph. Um, a surreal dance piece with the thinnest of plots and no real dramatic tension can work just fine on stage. But it's almost impossible to translate that to the screen. And I think that's where, from the get-go, the project faced huge amounts of problems. Um, and I agree with you, Michael. I mean, the lack of a real plot is fine if you just want to see some incredible dancing and one belted pop hit. Uh, <laughs> Hooper and uh, Lee, uh, oh my gosh, I just blanked on his name. Ah, Lee Hall. Lee thank Hall. you. Thank you. Uh, they tried to add some dramatic tension but, you know, there's no crying in baseball and there's no dramatic yeah. tension in cats. Um, you know, Holland, <laughs> Holland Hooper tried to add some, uh, add some of this tension by having Idris Elbez McCavity kidnapping some of the cats to a barge in the Thames. But it honestly just comes across like the plot of a villain in a Scooby-Doo episode. And it's just about <laughs> as intense as a Scooby-Doo episode. Um, I mean... Adding on to what you'd said, the CGI fur that sometimes disappears, the animated roaches and mice that the cats are eating while they're dancing. Rebel Wilson unzips her fur. I mean, uh, uh, what? Uh, some of the cats wear fur coats. Uh, does this mean they're wearing the skins of their enemies? Um, mm. 
you know, why Taylor Swift and her English accent has a figure when the rest of the women in the cast don't. The lack of consistency in size or costumes or anything. And uh, Andrew Lloyd Webber and Taylor Swift and her English accent wrote this new Oscar bait song for the movie that puts an I want number about an hour into the story. Uh, there is a reason why the rule is that the second song of a musical is the hmm. I want song. Uh, this beautiful ghosts number first off, does not sound like a T.S. Eliot poem when everything else in the show is based on his words, and it doesn't move the story forward, and Cats doesn't need an I Want song. It isn't that deep. Uh, It (laughs) ran on Broadway for 18 years and in London for 21 years without an I Want song. The show wasn't broken. You don't need to fix it. Um, For all that, I will say uh, they did get some things right with this, and I did not have as miserable a time at the theater as a lot of other people seem to have had. Uh, It was very cool to see the cat's animated tales used as part of Andy Blankenbuehler's choreography. That's something they couldn't do on stage because the tales were just cloth. Um, I love the detail of their ears twitching when they'd hear something in the distance. Great little detail. Uh, And like you, Michael, I loved that overture. Uh, And something else I caught, it shows locations that are mentioned in lyrics that the audiences wouldn't know about, like the pubs, the rising sun, and the friend at hand. In 1930s London, people knew those pubs. You didn't need to reference it. Now that's mentioned in the Grisabella song, and uh, she... uh, was that she wandered about the no man's land from the rising uh, rising sun to the friend at hand. No one knows what that means anymore. So we get to see those places. We see the Russell Hotel. Right. So when they sing about uh, singing up, up, up past the Russell Hotel, now it means something. So that was well done. I did like that overture, and that gave me a lot of hope for what the film could be. Um, and you know, Robbie Fairchild is wonderful. As He's as wonderful as he was in An American in Paris. I'm very sorry he's not getting more positive attention for his work in the film because he really does a wonderful job. Mm-hmm. Uh, Francesca Hayward dances beautifully. Um, always lovely to see her work. Um, I liked Andy Blankenbuehler's nods to Gillian Lynn. I did not see The Last Revival on Broadway, so I didn't see what he did with the show. Um, but my big problem with a lot of the dancing is that Hooper keeps cutting away from the dancing to show Jennifer Hudson watching the dancers or Judy Dench watching Jennifer Hudson or someone else just smiling vaguely because when the dancing is the most famous thing about cats, why keep the camera on the dancers? God damn it, Hooper. Um, it, just, it pisses me off when they do this. They, this started in the 1930s. I can't blame Hooper for this uh, as, as a concept, but it was like starting in the 30s with a lot of the MGM musicals where they would just do close-ups of the faces while people were dancing rather than pulling the camera back to show the whole body. And this is why I really like the, what is it, 98, 99 uh, film stage version of Cats because the camera is pulled back. You can see all that amazing choreography. And that's where I thought, they he really got this wrong when there you know, some top notch talent dancing their hearts out, and so he cuts away to show someone's face instead. Why? Um, uh, Jennifer Hudson sings very well as Grisabella, and I will fully admit I choked up when she hit that crescendo in memory because that moment is really hard to screw up. Um, even if she had to sing with snot coming out of her nose because that's Tom Hooper's <laughs> signature style. Um, Taylor Swift and her English accent does a fine job with McCavity, but by that point in the film, you're just not expecting an awful lot. Um, I mean, it's wonderful to see Judy Dench and Ian McKellen, sorry, Dame Judy Dench, Sir Ian McKellen. Uh, they can do no wrong, but uh, God, the screenplay tries to make them. Um, and 
Incidentally, can I just interject? Uh, can we just agree that the addressing of cats is a crappy finale for a show? <laughs> um, I mean, seriously, what is the point of a cat is not a dog? I mean, I'll thank you. I'll remember that. Um, she tr- uh, Judy Dench tries to make that little song sound profound, but if she can't do it, no one can. Uh, I really wish if they were going to add a new song for the show, add a better finale. Um, but when all's said and done, I, I will want to give everyone involved with the show credit for at least taking a risk on something that is weird and something that is different. Uh, this isn't a reboot of a superhero origin story. And I really hope this won't stop producers from uh, trying to bring more musicals to the screen in the future. And, you know, if this becomes the new Rocky Horror and it runs for years at midnight screenings and people get dressed up to go see it and cheer them on, that's fine. That'll be wonderful. The stage show was a gateway drug for me as a kid. I listened to that <laughs> cast recording over and over again. I loved it. I can certainly credit Cats for being a reason why I became obsessed with theater, or one of the many reasons anyway. Um, I hope the film will capture people's interest. I think, uh, as one friend of mine commented, in 15 years you're going to have people who you know, saw this as children and are now obsessed with theater and obsessed with musicals and ballet. And if it accomplishes that, then it did good. Um, I can't say I had you know, the best the, uh, cinematic experience of my life at this show, but you know, I had a lot worse as well. So uh, it, it, it's, it's worth seeing just for the dancing. If they're going to release a second version with patches and updates, I hope they release a version where the camera just stays on the dancers and lets the dancers do their thing. All right, Peter, uh, do you have any final words to say about the cats, the film? Yeah, sure. Um, I, I, I agree. I don't think it's terrible. Um, uh, I do feel that director Tim Hooper's work is very sincere and that's got to count for something. He, he knows what this film wants to be um, and whether or not we'll see what he saw is another matter. But the big mistake was casting stars, James Corden, Judy Dench, all the people we've mentioned, because we've long known their faces from hairline to chin, and they lo- do look so eerie as cats. They seem to be <laughs> victims of some horrifying nuclear accident that also caused thin growths to spurt from their behinds. Now, you know, during Cat's 18-year Broadway run, it had no stars to speak of. I did some research, and I found that um, some of them had been in Bring Back Birdie, Dr. Jazz, Don't Step on My Olive Branch, Little Johnny Jones, Little Prince and the Aviator, and Marlowe. And in those, the people who were in those shows actually played these roles. Conceited Man, Girlfriend, neighbor, Indian, passenger, and performer. So chances are nobody in the house saw Rene Clemente and said, oh, there's the guy we love so much when he played Jerome and played me a country song. You know, some knew Betty Buckley, and only, but only those who've been following Broadway for some time. Um, some knew Harry Groner and Steve Hannon, but not really. And Terrence Mann, who would go on to have fat parts in Les Mis and Beauty and the Beast, um, but at that point, his resume was only that he was in Barnum. So the comparative anonymity of these 26 people on the Winter Garden stage helped to make these strangers in cat outfits look intriguing, but on the screen, these familiar stars look disturbingly strange. So, and I understand the decision to cast stars, 
I, and why, by the way, Broadway producers don't like to cast stars. Um, because after a big star leaves a Broadway show, somehow the show seems like damaged goods, unless they get somebody really sensational. Um, and, or, or better even, but that rarely happens. So, um, so I mean, in, in the old days, like Rosalind Russell did Wonderful Town for a year. She left. Carol Channing came in, couldn't do any business, closed before three months were over, you know, um, but they made back their money. These days, you can't make back your money in a year. So if you have a star and the star leaves, chances are you're not going to recoup um, or, or at least not recoup as easily. So you might as well have comparative nobodies um, in, in, the, um, in the Broadway show. Now, please understand, I'm not talking about a lack of talent. I'm only talking about a lack of ra- name recognition. But movies don't have this problem with replacements. You know, once filming is completed, the people will be there. You should pardon the expression now and forever. So, <laughs> so I do understand, you know, the, the idea of casting stars to get people in the theater, but it did turn out to be a, a problem. And Jen is so right. The, the, there's greater reality with a film than with a stage musical. And, and on Broadway, John Napier's unit set amused with the Sobeside junkyard. But, you know, the films, there were six designers on this, and they gave us a very accurate London with a very detailed Piccadilly Circus and Trafalgar Square. And so seeing these strange creatures roam around these familiar scenes makes for an experience. Um, I did like, by the way, uh, the quick look at various marquees of um, Wake Up and Dream and the Cat and the Canary. <laughs> and I wasn't sure if the Cat and the Canary was there because that's sort of like an Easter egg. But so it seems like um, it was um, it was set in the 20s or the 30s when these sto- stage shows or movies were playing. But uh, my favorite set decoration this was a wanted poster, the type that you see in post offices that says McCavity wanted for everything. I like that a lot. Um, but, you know, another problem is Cats takes place exclusively at night. And most musicals, by their very nature, are sunny. Mm-hmm. And the stage so compensated by having spotlights illuminate those who are singing and dancing. But here the lighting is constantly dim. as if It's almost as if London is anticipating the blitz. <laughs> so the doom and the gloom steps out the joy. And there is a lot of joy. Jenna, I'm with you. I mean, needless to say, I wasn't a kid when um, Cats came out. But um, it, it's very chic now to come down on Andrew Lloyd Webber for this, that, and the other thing. But, you know, these songs are marvelous, many of them. And... Uh, they're bouncy, they're fun, you know, and, and yes, they give tremendous choreograph opportunities. And I don't think Memory is the only beautiful song, because I think that Old Deuteronomy and Gus the Theater Cat are fabulous ballads. So, um, but I agree that um, Hooper and Lee Hall uh, did add interstitial dialogue that clarifies the story, because I, I think so many people went to Cats expecting a story. I'm talking about the stage show now, expecting a story, and after two or three numbers said, the hell with it, it's a review. Okay, no big <laughs> deal. Um, but, um, but really, it, it was a case that um, the, these little lines at least made a little bit clearer what supposedly is going on. Now, what's really interesting, of course, is that um, Universal Pictures, um, seeing the dismal ticket sales um, and the very poor audience reaction, I have to say when I saw it, there were 
people who came just to laugh. There were uh, there was a girl in the audience who just would not stop laughing and didn't care that she was disturbing everybody. It didn't matter. Mm-hmm. It didn't matter. It's all about her. That's mm-hmm. all. You know, <laughs> and and would not stop laughing. And at the end of the show, was talking in the lobby about how she had seen it four times, and um, and she's going to go again because she's going to laugh again and all this kind. Of, and really, I mean, the picture doesn't deserve that. No picture deserves that type of thing where. Um, you purposely go there to do that um, because I don't believe that seeing the show for the, for the movie for the fourth time, that indeed she was that taken uh, by laughter. So anyway, so it was, it was really kind of lousy to see that. And I almost told her off at the end, but um, mm. I, I minded my own business anyway. Um, but, um, Universal has, uh, as you may have heard, dropped all for your consideration Oscar ads. Um, yeah. they, it's, it's, um, you know, they do feel it's a wash, but you know, had poisonous word of mouth and audience indifference not been so intense. I do believe that, um, both Hudson and McKellen had shots at shots at, um, uh, supporting Oscar, uh, nominations, uh, because I thought Hudson was great in memory. Um, she really got it in both senses of the words. Um, and, um, I thought McKellen was great in Augusta theater cat. Um, and there's one moment when he does some, a flick of the wrist, which is such a perfect cat maneuver that, um, I, w- I was very impressed by that. So, um, but, you know, I still don't understand. I'll never understand why after Grizabella goes to the heavy side layer that she doesn't come back looking like a million dollars because cats supposedly have nine lives. You know, I mean, that mm. would be so great. And I, I can't believe that nobody ever thought of that. And, you know, when you think that the lyrics of the song, you know, I must think of a new life when the dawn comes, a new day will begin. I mean, when I saw Cats back in 1982, I mean, I really firmly, I, I was bored by it because, again, um, I'm not a person for reviews. This was a glorified review. Um, I need to be emotionally involved, and this wasn't doing that for me. And I forgave it everything when it occurred to me she was going to come back looking like a million dollars. And when she didn't, I was furious. But anyway, uh, of course, Cats didn't suffer for the ending it did choose. Um, it really hasn't suffered until now. But you know something? Isn't it interesting? that the last three musicals to set long-run records have all been failures as movies, A Chorus Line, Phantom, and this. Mm-hmm. But, mm-hmm. and for that matter, the longest-running off-Broadway musical, The Fantastics, also was um, a, a terrible uh, disappointment in box office dud. But, but I have never, ever, ever, when I go to IMDb, seen a rating as low as Cats. I mean, I checked, and Phantom gets 7.3. Chorus Line 6.2, Fantastics 5.6, Cats 2.8. Oh, ouch. I have never seen a rating remotely that low. I don't think I've seen anything under four. Now, I'm sure there are plenty of movies that did get ratings this low. Uh, They're just not movies in which I'm interested or know about. But nevertheless, on a personal level, 2.8 is by far the lowest I've ever seen. Still, I do not believe... This movie deserves our contempt, and I don't feel anybody should feel it's beneath our contempt either. And to end on a positive note, when I saw the movie, uh, there was a trailer for In the Heights, which looks absolutely yeah. fantastic. I agree. Mm-hmm. Yes. I, it was in mind, yes. too. I agree. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. 
And and I agree with you. I don't think it is uh, beneath our contempt. There, I like I said, there are elements that really do work. And again, they took some risks with mm-hmm. this, mm-hmm. and I really admire that. Mm-hmm. Uh, even if it sticks around as some Rocky Horror kind of thing that people can get dressed up for, and go. I mean, and that would raise the question, are they laughing at or laughing with? Because with mm-hmm. Rocky Horror, it's very much laughing with. Um, I would hope, you know, people go see it, sing along. I mean, T.S. Eliot's poems are great. Uh, and like you, I agree. I think there are quite a lot of uh, lovely songs in the show. So I, I, I do, I don't hold it in contempt. I was not as odd as I wanted to be, but I also didn't hate it as much as I was afraid I would. And by the way, one really must thank Cats, um, the stage show, because that was at a time where Broadway was having trouble. Yes, um, yes. And uh, it needed a smash hit. And don't forget, the reviews weren't very good. Um, they weren't pans. They certainly weren't like the reviews the movie has received. But they weren't raves. And yet, it became something that everybody had to see. And people who had been a little nervous about getting into the city um, decided they'd come in. Uh, the eighties were really a tough time for Broadway. I mean, there's never been another decade where the Tony Awards actually eliminated categories. Um, yeah, unless you count um, mm. the sunset Boulevard year when, uh, the, mm. and uh, Lloyd Webber got the score uncontested, but, but still, I mean, the 80s were tough times, and, and Cats kept uh, Broadway in, in, um, in the minds of people. It, it was certainly very famous, even if that expression, it's better than Cats, <laughs> was meant um, in an um, uh, ironic fashion. Still, the fact is, I mean, I saw a lot of movies during that time where I would see people wearing Cats t-shirts in the mm. film, you know. So, um, so in a strange way, we, we owe a debt to Cat. And then I, I, about two months after the producers opened, there was an article with Nathan Lane saying, the backlash should begin any day now. <laughs> Meaning, you know, that once there's a smash hit, it becomes chic to, to put it down. And, um, and certainly Cat's becoming the longest running show and eclipsing chorus line, which was beloved, um, certainly turned a lot of people against it. But um, let's be thankful that it kept Broadway in the public consciousness and got people to come to the Winter Garden for a long, long time. Well, from day one, I, you know, there were many people who saw Cats as a cause for derision, but also many, obviously, many, many people who loved it. When the show was revived on Broadway, I remember hearing so many people say, oh, I love Cats. I can't wait to see it. And, and, and speaking to several performers who were delighted to have been cast in the revivals. So because of the, obviously, because of the subject matter and the fact that it is a bunch of people in cat suits, it, it's inherently open for derision by people who want to do that. But, uh, but that also makes it special in a way. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't, I can't, quite think of any other show that's quite like it at the moment and so i agree with all of those points and uh, and it is really a, a an epic making musical in that sense and uh, partly because of the timing as you said uh who knows um what the history of musical theater since cats would have been if it hadn't happened mm-hmm. absolutely i and- wonder if uh if there is a uh, it, it just we were talking at the very top of the show about uh, luck and timing and everything uh, that goes into uh, becoming a hit. 
if Cats had never existed and hit Broadway today mm. in this world of internet, every time, uh, immediate social media reviews, um, would Cats have been, you know, would Cats have survived it? I think that Cats was an uh, unqualified success um, because their marketing team on Cats told everybody it was a success. And <laughs> and they were very good at that. And it, it was a, it, you know, it, it ran for many, many years based upon uh, uh, people telling us that it was su- success. So uh, it, it's very, it, I, I think we're in a much different environment right now. And, uh, and Variety says that cats cost $100 million to produce and then an additional $100 million for marketing and distribution fees. Oh, mm. gosh. Uh, and that has taken in less than $30 million globally so far. Um, so these things happen. And, mm. But I think that, you know, it's going to live on, for, you know, forever in <laughs> streaming and in DVDs and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, downloads and uh, things along those lines. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that people will be able to see this. And I, I wonder if the, that horrible rating over at uh, IMDb will, uh, it's got a 2.8 uh, out of 10 with 17,700 people weighing in. I wonder if that number will come up over the years. Mm-hmm. I hope so. Jenna, you were going to say something? Uh, I'm sure I was, and I'm sure it was very profound and deep, <laughs> but now I've forgotten it. So. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, I think right. I something about... Uh, talking about the very concept of cats and dancers dressed up as cats. Uh, I had viewed the show, especially as I grew older, still humming those songs. I had viewed it more as a ballet than a traditional Mm. book musical, since there's not that much of a book uh, to go with. Um, So I would pose the question, what's the difference between dancers dressed as cats and dancers dressed as swans? Why is it that we Uh, sneer at one, but cheer on the other? Yeah. (laughs) Good for you. Yeah. Absolutely. And the funny thing was that for all this talk about dancing and all the dancing in the show, didn't even win the Tony for choreography. Verily. Yeah, Hmm. my one and only did. Um, That must have really been painful for Jillian Lynn, who, by the way, um, I would rate as one of the 20 best interviews I ever did in my life. She was terrific. (laughs) Well, Jillian Lynn can laugh all the way to the bank. And had a theater (laughs) name for her, too. In yeah. Northern, yeah. Uh, and you had talked about the uh, the film failures. We can't go without mentioning that uh, Chicago, the musical film, uh, might have been uh, an exception to that rule. There, you know. Having- well, all I'm talking about is shows that broke the long run record. Yeah. Okay. I mean, it is true that certainly Chicago has run longer than shows that did break the long run record, even the ones that were tremendous long run records like cats. But the bottom line is that it never broke the long run record. And the movie was made before it broke the long run record. Yeah, that too. Yeah. All right. So eventually I'm sure that that'll be a uh, trivia question, but let's move on to this week's trivia question, Peter. Fine. He was nominated as Best Actor in this musical, and she was nominated as Best Actress in this musical. The same show, okay? Each had already won a Tony. And yet, together, they had less to sing than two people who are heard more on the original cast album. Two people, in fact, 
who had never before appeared on Broadway and never would again. The two nominees, however, would make other Broadway appearances. What's the show in question? Who are the two stars? And you needn't name the two nobodies unless you really want to. (laughs) All right. If you have an answer to that, email us at trivia at broadwayradio.com and we'll let you know if you're on the right track. So before we leave you for today, I want to remind you that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of broadwayradio.com. There's a subscribe link. That way, each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be automatically downloaded to Apple Podcasts for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to an Apple Podcast. iHeartRadio plays as Tuner, Stitcher, Google Play, anywhere that you can listen to find our podcasts, you can find Broadway Radio's offerings. Contact information for Jennifer, Michael, for Peter, and for me can be found at the show notes at broadwayradio.com, as well as links to some of the things we've talked about today, including um, Hal Prince thing. We have uh, the link back to um, the New York Musical Festival uh, uh, article in the New York Times and all, all sorts of other stuff, plus uh, the Cats film and stuff along those lines. And uh, all right. So, on behalf of Jenna Tessa Fox, Michael Portantier, and Peter Felicia, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radios this week on Broadway. Bye-bye. But at least you have beautiful ghosts. And so maybe my home isn't what I had known, what I thought it would be. But I feel so alive with these phantoms of night. And I know that this life isn't safe, but it's wild and it's free. Something, something to cling to. I never knew I'd love this world they've let me into. And the memories were lost long ago. So I'll die.